We're on a terrace in a hotel overlooking San Lorenzo in Florence. And Professor Rochefort has been here to speak at a workshop on nationalism. I suppose I'd like to just get straight into the, the main meat and potatoes of what I'd like to discuss with you is that you wrote a, a landmark study on the history of nationalism and thinking about nationalism that was uh, of, of great significance. But it was before the economic crash. It was before the rise of so-called populism. And I just wondered if you could share with us how your thinking about nationalism has changed, if at all, over the recent years. Essentially, I think it's hard to write a sort of nuanced or balanced treatment of nationalism and historical perspective without risking falling into either one of two camps. And I was recently congratulated by email on the significance of, of my book, The Endurance of Nationalism, by uh, someone who will go unnamed, uh, who uh, said that you know the, the book was well done and all that. Uh, and I looked the person up and found that uh, this academic was associated with rather far-right political and intellectual uh, currents uh, of a sort that I really would not uh, wish to identify myself with, and uh, and so I mean anything like that can happen. But but I think it, it was symptomatic. It it, it crystal, helped crystallize in my mind a feeling that I'd had, which is that in the public sphere, certainly nowadays, position in favor of of liberal nationalism, without arousing this making an apologia for bigoted, chauvinistic right nationalism. And I think that's a function of the, the polarization of global politics, which has also affected the dynamics of the academic field. So I think you, you must feel, based on those comments, quite torn at the moment, in the sense that when I was uh, a doctoral student, it was really taken as read that nationalism had had its day, that when historians tried to explain the nationalism of the past, uh, the orthodoxy was that this was something that had been invented with modernity, it was something new, and then it went away. And there you were making a case, going against the grain to say the least, that actually nationalism is something that runs through human history one way or another. It would appear that now the world is gripped by nationalism again, that you were absolutely right. That can't be a very comfortable feeling. <laughs> exactly, right. I mean, I think my, my, my basic... Uh, you, I mean, the, the reason I still like the idea, naive and uh, fruitless though it may be, of, of uh, liberal nationalism, for ba ba want of a basic term, is that... I mean, it's partly because I don't think it's just going to go away and, and therefore uh, it has to be managed and politicians and intellectuals and ordinary people have to find ways of recognizing the need to balance the nationalist impulse with universal values, uh, fundamental values of you know, belief in human rights, tolerance, ac acceptance of the other, mutual respect and you know, uh, pluralistic and democratic values. My sense, looking historically, is that, that uh, sort of progressive forces in history have tended to make a mistake 
whenever they have simply sought to ignore nationalism or dismiss it as something passing or something that can only manifest itself in ugly ways and, and cannot possibly be co-opted uh, in the service of more progressive causes. I'm thinking, for instance, of the SPD, the Social Democrats of, of Germany during the uh, first, ha you know, first half or first third of the 20th century, uh, who, who tended to leave nationalism for uh, the right wing to play with. And, and, and uh, I fear that that kind of response simply uh, allows the right wing and forces of intolerance to monopolize nationalist symbols, images, mythology, and emotions in a way that makes them more powerful and renders the forces of tolerance more vulnerable and incapable of responding effectively. So, so you're right, I sort of, I, I guess I, fe I feel vindicated in a perverse way by the fact that nationalism is, is clearly uh, not a thing of the past as we speak at the moment, but I'm also frustrated that uh, we haven't found ways to channel it in more productive, uh, in more productive ways. Can you think of a, a time and a place where this was actually done well, that progressive forces engaged successfully with nationalism? Certainly, uh, you know, the Allies in World War II were not averse to nationalism per se. They, of course, embraced a global vision of the United Nations uh, against the, the, the racist, uh, xenophobic, aggressive nationalism of the Axis powers, but they, they, they clearly very much uh, also identified their respective nations' missions with the idea of rolling back the threat of fascism and, and Nazism, and uh, they uh, by and large did not reject nationalism in any form. On the contrary, that both in the First World War and in the Second World War, the, you know, the Allied powers fought in the name of self-determination. Of course, the, there were plenty of hypocrisies because these were also imperial powers who, for much of, the, of that era, denied national self-determination to peoples outside of uh, Europe and the Americas. But that changed over time. And, and in fact, uh, the anti-colonial struggle of the 19... 40s through 70s was itself informed by a, 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 a vision of nationalism, after all. And that nationalism, in the end, it, in many countries, it, it, has, it failed uh, or, or led to further conflicts and disasters. But, but there are certainly plenty of cases of, of um, intellectual and political activists who uh, sought to bind their visions of national liberation to universal human values and ethical visions, however much they may have fallen short or betrayed those principles in, in practice. Is it not possible to suggest, though, that it will always, as a project, nationalism end in disaster? Well, it's, it's clearly very, you know, very prone to doing so. But, I mean, most principles taken to an extreme can become very ugly and, and sort of morally perverse. Uh, I mean, the, the you know, the right wing in many countries uh, tends to decry socialism because of Stalin and Mao, forgetting that it could also take on the, the, the face of, of, of Willy Brandt. 
the fact that, that taken to its sort of illogical conclusion, socialism could take on horrific totalitarian forms does not, I think, mean that as a project, socialism cannot also be reconciled with democratic and pluralistic values, as indeed has been accomplished for a period of time in some countries. At the moment, the, the so-called welfare state and the social democratic projects of the post-World War II years have fallen apart or in crisis. But should we abandon that as a, as a, as a possible vision uh, or, or as a simply cast it, cast it aside as a worthless project simply because it's fallen on hard times or because some movements took those ideas astray? I don't think so. Uh, and more fundamentally, to be sure, if, 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 if we could just wish all feelings of us and them, all human tendencies to distinguish between those who, you know, the communities they belong to and, and communities that, that should remain on the other side of a fence or a wall or a border, if we could eliminate that impulse in all humans, you know, uh, in, in, in some fashion, it would undoubtedly lead to good things. But I don't think that's, I don't think that's realistic. And, and therefore, I fear that, that, that treating nationalism as something that is fundamentally and intrinsically evil in all of its forms and manifestations, uh, again, risks simply becoming a self-fulfilling attitude by virtue of leaving the, the entire arena of, of national activity uh, to be monopolized by precisely those very forces that will indeed turn it to evil purpose. And if we look to the, um, those political movements and parties that are trying to take the momentum back from the far right, whether it's in parts of Latin America, the United States, um, or in Europe, what practical advice would you give to politicians grappling with how to bring nationalism and national identity back away from extreme forces on the right? Especially in times of, of, of crisis, economic downturn, uncertainty, perceptions of, of, of threat from outsiders and so forth, the far right will always have an intrinsic advantage, which is that they offer simplistic solutions. They have ready-to-hand scapegoats. Targeting those scapegoats becomes the essence of their proposed solutions. And uh, those approaches have the appeal of simplicity, uh, of relieving uh, political subjects of any sense of accountability or responsibility and, and putting the blame on others and, and so on and so forth. But based upon your historical research and argumentation, brings me on to a, a much wider question at this moment of global political crisis, which is how do you see the role of the historian in terms of for educating the wider public and also policymakers? In the classroom, we try to teach students, I think most fundamentally, to think critically about sources and not to take any one narrative at face value, uh, but rather to, to read between the lines, to consider alternatives, to understand that history is an argument and not a anyone's final word. Ideally, there would be ways of conveying that to the broader public uh, as well. Some historians, uh, you know, in, on social media have, uh, have been uh, 
doing a, an impressive job of simply of simply countering lies and presenting more authoritative stories in response to historical simplifications, obfuscations, and, and outright falsifications uh, put forth by a variety of publicists and, and politicians. So simple uh, kind of historical fact-checking, to the extent that it can be conveyed, is not insignificant public, public service. More broadly, I suppose, conveying, uh, conveying to people a sense of the fragility of, I might call, civilized norms. People have felt free across the world to vote in uh, irresponsible and nasty demagogues, perhaps in part because I, I wonder whether voters themselves think that they can have their cake and eat it too and preserve all the things they like about their lives and at the same time get more things that they want by bucking the system and voting in someone who promises to change the way things are done and turn the world upside down. Maybe they don't quite believe that the world really will be turned upside down. Perhaps the most fundamental service historians can, can do is to try to convey to people just how fragile the social fabrics of societies really are and, and just how, how high a price past societies, past generations have paid for thinking that they can gain something by voting in a, a, a person or a party who promises to blow apart the system while imagining that, that somehow this will not result in blowing apart their own lives. They paid a high price for being so cavalier with their political choices in the past, and I think it's incumbent on historians to try to remind people of that and convey it to them in an era when sort of personal and family memories of, of the world wars, and even of the Second World War, are fading. Uh, I, I think for half a century, the, the, the memory, either personal or conveyed to children, uh, of the of the Second World War and what it meant to so many different countries helped restrain societies and helped put limits on what was deemed acceptable politically. And I think we're now, we've entered a new epoch characterized by, uh, among other things, simply the, the, the fading of the memories of World War II, uh, such that people can now invoke the sort of select, selected symbols, illusions, and so forth uh, from the fascist movements of the past and win votes on their basis rather than scaring them away. Uh, and people need to be scared. Thank you very much, Professor Rochewald. Thank you for speaking with us at Monitor. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much.